Hi everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have Frank James with us, the skit creator in the MBTI community. And you've probably already seen his videos because he is one of the most popular MBTI YouTubers and he is the rising tide that raises all ships. He gets people into MBTI. He is the gateway drug into this community for a lot of people. And so we have Frank to thank for that. The community greatly appreciates all that you offer, and you are a celebrity in the sphere, so I'm honored to be in your presence. Oh, boy. Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you an image to live up to. I'm, I'm well, kidding. No pressure. No pressure. Thank you, Joyce. I appreciate it, and I'm glad to be here. I enjoy your interviews. Awesome. And so I'm curious, Frank. I, I think some of my audience doesn't know about you as a human being. And so I would like to ask about your life. You are a new dad. So congratulations on that. Heck yeah. And I'm wondering how it's like to embrace the father life. It's great. It's definitely uh, a, what would you call it? A change, an entire change of the baseline of your life. I'm trying to think of what the word is. It is a, uh, uh, it'll come to me eventually. It's a sea change, as Shakespeare said. So, but it's it's great. You know, I think going into it, I was very worried. I Because, you know, everyone says your life changes totally when you become a parent. So I was like, oh, crap, my life is over. But uh, actually, no, you know, a child brings so much joy to your life and you like can't even imagine how much you love a child like i mean obviously intellectually you're like oh yeah of course i'm gonna love my kid more than anything but it's like until you feel it you're not really you don't really know and so it's just uh it's been uh amazing my uh my son is om is gonna be six months old uh, this week and uh it's amazing to see him become a a person and develop his personality and yeah it's just uh, amazing i hi highly recommend uh parenthood <laughs> yeah if you want to expedite your personal growth and give a lot of new life experiences to you parenthood is one of the ways you can go down that route that's really amazing and it seems like you are a great parent and i'm wondering if you notice any pros and cons your personality type brings to parenthood that's a good question because I think on the one hand, um, I, I am always, it, it's hard to know because it's like with a baby, is he giving off the same signals that a, an adult would, <laughs> you know, like do, do those expressions mean the same emotion that an adult would have? You do Obviously, kids don't have the, uh, the brain development of... Uh, even an older child. So uh, I'm always like reading into how he feels. And I think that's that can be a positive because I'm like tuned into that. But then it can also be like putting too much pressure on myself <laughs> sometimes to keep him happy because I'm like worried. Oh, man, did, you know, is he like freaking out about something? Like, for instance, when we uh the first time when we brought him to daycare we're like oh man is he gonna think we're abandoning him is he gonna be sad blah 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 it's like no he doesn't have any concept of <laughs> any of that like he's having a great time he's having experiences he's m making baby friends so um you know it's stuff like that where you're just like um 
sometimes overcompensating, but then I think there are other times where having the the feeling preference, especially extroverted feeling helps because it's like, you know, be I feel like I understand him on a level that is not easy to express. Like even though we're not able to communicate with words, uh, you know, I feel like I really do kind of get what he what he wants and needs what he's feeling in any moment but maybe that's just me <laughs> telling myself a story and i have no clue i don't know there's no real way to know but there is this desire to infer into his emotional experience and yeah. to hopefully mirror it as much as possible to look over his emotional well-being so you want to be in sync with how he feels and make sure you honor it as much as possible there are a lot of new couples who talk about baby-proofing your relationships. So having a baby is one of the biggest milestones that some couples have. And it's one of the biggest stress tests for relationships too. And so that's very awesome that you're figuring out really great ways that help you with navigating your newborn. So yeah. yeah. Speaking of your newborn, I'm wondering about your dynamic with your wife, who is a TE dominant so is she an ENTJ or an ESTJ? Have you? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I th I'll just say ENTJ for, you know, to, to eliminate ambiguity. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I think sometimes it's hard to pick up for me, at least on the, the middle preference. So, um, mm, yeah. yeah, because yeah, it's, it's kind of balanced. So I see the sensing, I see the intuition. I, I feel like the more you get to know someone, the harder it is to pick apart the preference sometimes because you're always able to think of really good exceptions to, you know, whatever case you're trying to prove for one or the other. Um, yeah, but I think TE dominant is is pretty uh, defendable <laughs> of a position. Although sometimes, you know, she talks very uh, fluently about emotions and you know, sometimes I'm like, is this, am I hearing like some kind of like weird FE? Like, I don't know what's going on, but I, I think, <laughs> I think TE is probably the best uh, case to be made there. So us working together as parents is interesting. Like when it is true, like it is a stress test for a relationship because once you put a baby into the mix, your priorities are shifted a lot in ways where you maybe didn't expect like your life changes my my friend jj uh jj mccullough who's a youtuber he has said this he, he was telling me this before he's giving me all this advice he's like i know all these people who are parents and they all say like your life changes in ways that you didn't expect and then it doesn't change in ways that you thought it would and it was all good like the ways it changed were good the ways it didn't change were good also but your priorities shift and you stop focusing primarily on each other as a couple and you're focusing on your child. And sometimes that can accidentally lead to neglecting the relationship or getting, you know, even like just getting short with each other sometimes. Cause it's like, Hey, we got to, you know, this is the priority. Now there's also, you know, when it comes to dividing up responsibilities, that's a big thing because no matter you know like i feel like i'm a pretty present father 
but no matter how good of a dad you are, you're not you're not able to do as much as the mother is usually. So there's always the that dynamic of like, man, I just I got to step up my game. And even still, it's like, I hope I hope I'm doing enough. I hope I'm not, you know, we're not building some kind of resentment up. So communication is very important. You have to communicate more than you're used to, because before the baby communication is just like natural all the time. And it's not that much to communicate about relatively. And then once you have mm -hmm. the kid, you're put in this emotional pressure cooker of sorts and you're not talking to each other unless you take time to do it. And that's even like with us, our baby is like the easiest baby in the world. Everyone's telling us this is not a normal baby. He, he doesn't cry. He doesn't fuss. He slept through the night like when he was a month old. So we're doing well in terms of like <laughs> how things in comparison to how things could be. Uh, and even then it's tough. So I can only imagine if you have like a normal baby who who cries a decent amount, who doesn't sleep through the night all the way yet it would be even more trying. So it's just a matter of being aware, being conscious of what's happening. And I think knowing the personality differences also is great because it helps me, like I am, <laughs> I am overly sensitive, I think. And if I didn't know that my wife has uh, extroverted thinking dominant and in like objective personality terms, it's masculine, extroverted thinking if i didn't know that i would be much more sensitive I'm, I'm able to like distance myself a little bit and be like okay this is just like the communication that you would get from this type no no big deal but it's just like when she when a te dominant needs help they'll just say i need help get over here now this thing needs to be done why haven't you done this you know and to a, a type with extroverted feeling it's when you prefer extroverted feeling, it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, like, what do we don't, what do we have to work about? Like, <laughs> you know, what are the tasks that need to be done? It doesn't matter. We put that off. We're just, we're having a good time. That's, well, that's what matters, right? You know, let me cook some dinner for you, even though it's totally impractical. We don't have the time for it. And there's like other things that should be done instead. So uh, it's good to, to be aware of her communication with that function as well as how i receive it given my functions and like what i'm also doing that's probably irritating her by focusing on what she probably thinks is totally irrelevant emotional stuff when there are things to be done right but uh overall <laughs> overall i can't complain it's going well um yeah it's i think that's the best that's what i'm most thankful for when it comes to learning personality typology is that awareness of other people and how they are fundamentally different on certain in certain ways. I mean, we're all fundamentally the same in other ways, but ways that we might think that person is should rephrase what they're saying. Like I, I sugarcoat everything I say and my wife doesn't and she doesn't understand why would you sugarcoat it? It's like wasting time. Just say what you need to say, what you need to have happen. So I'm very thankful for that knowledge it's it is definitely making uh married life a little bit easier than i think it would be without that 
With ENTJs and ESTJs, they like things to be blunt and upfront, and they expect that from the other person too. And it can be surprising as an INFJ or as a type that prefers their feeling. They may be like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to be blunt because I don't want to hurt your feelings when they don't even need you to consider their feelings as much as you might feel the inclination to. And so there's this there's this adjustment period where you get used to saying what's on your mind without sugarcoating at all, because that's actually how they prefer it. And the ENTJ, the TE dominant is more likely to sacrifice feeling good for efficiency. It's like, it's okay if we step over people's toes a little bit to get the job done in a timely manner. And then the extroverted feeling user, the FJ, it's quite ironic that your name is, is Frank <laughs> James FJ uh, for like <laughs> INFJ. It worked out. Yeah. It's meant by the universe. <laughs> so these high extroverted feeling types, if they're going to sacrifice something, it's sacrificing a little bit of efficiency to make sure everyone feels good. And so sometimes that might clash a little bit. Yeah. And, and let me, uh, pardon, pardon me if I'm stepping on a, a thought there, but I just had something that's interesting I've noticed is um, with extroverted thinking, a lot of times they seem less decisive than is the stereotype, you know? And I think a lot of times that comes down to that sacrificing of their own feelings because they're like, whatever, like, I don't, they'll say, should, my wife says all the time, like, I don't care, whatever you want. And on the one hand, that's just sort of like trying to make things more efficient rather than have a back and forth. She's just like, you make the decision, but it's also like, she doesn't want to put out her FI if you will, and say, this is what I, she doesn't want to stand on that in, in a decision-making situation. So a lot of times things kind of get left up in the air because, because we both have extroverted decision-making uh, functions that we prefer. A lot of times we're just kind of like past kicking the ball back and forth. And it's like, okay, uh, you know, I often <laughs> find myself having to play that part of the introverted decision maker and just be like, okay, we're doing this, deal with it, you know? Yeah, because sometimes the EJ type, so the ENTJ or ESTJ may just want what the tribe wants, because it's like, I don't even, I don't want to focus on how I feel about this. I just want to get yeah. the thing done in a way where everyone agrees the most. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's an efficient decision making for sure. And I find INFJs have a buffet style of making decisions. So it's like, everyone is eating at a buffet and they're seeing, okay, I want everyone to eat what they like at this buffet, but at the end, we want all this food to be eaten. So eventually someone's going to have to beat the broccoli, but I hope everyone can do as many tasks as they enjoy up to that point. And so there's this desire to get people's needs met along the way as much as possible. With extroverted feeling, they do have a group decision-making element like the ENTJ, but it, it's directed towards meeting everyone's emotional needs. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, you know, if we do, if we meet those emotional needs, every, the work will get done somehow. Like someone will eat the broccoli. Is that kind of what you're going for with that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious about the love story behind you and your ENTJ. You guys met over a dating app, right? And mm -hmm. What was it that drew you to her? What are your favorite qualities about her? So I uh, did a, so uh, yeah, so we met on Hinge and that's an app where it's sort of just like six prompts that are 
uh, you know, it's just like six questions and they're kind of goofy. It's like, you know, you finish the sentence. It's like, if I, uh, like the, the thing that most scares me is blah, blah, blah. I forget. I don't even remember what they are. The, the partner I'm looking for will blah, blah, blah. And it's like not much information. So I was doing, if you, if you're familiar with, uh, Seinfeld, I was doing a George Costanza there where I was doing the opposite of my impulse <laughs> when I, went on this app because I was, I was always like, let me get, let me, I want to know going into date one as much as I can about this person. So I can kind of just weed things out beforehand. Like I didn't want to put in a lot of effort into actually meeting people in person. I wanted to do most of that work beforehand on the app. Uh, and so like on a site like, okay, Cupid, people can write like a whole novel about themselves and answer like 45,000 questions about themselves. And what I was finding is that was putting up so many filters that I was just like, not able to find any matches. Like it was like, no one was good enough. <laughs> so on hinge, I was like, uh, open it up, baby. Let's see whatever, you know, I'm going to like look lower the filters a lot so i'm just more open-minded and instead of trying to make the decision in advance i'm going to meet the person at, at, ahead of time or uh, not ahead of time i'm going to meet the person without trying to figure it out ahead of time so uh, i was trying to tap into some extroverted sensing rather than uh you know the uh introverted intuition planning and uh so when I, I forget what happened, I think she messaged me first and I, her profile wasn't like, it wasn't like immediate, like this is the one, but I was like, sure, let's go on a date, whatever. And, uh, the first date didn't go well. Like I showed up 20 minutes late because I couldn't find parking. It was like, uh, a, <laughs> it was a coffee shop downtown and like parking was impossible. It's a place that I had been many times before. So I was very confident that I could find parking and I couldn't. So I was 20 minutes late. I, I you know, we meet, I say, Hey, I'm going to get coffee. Do you want some? She says, no, I'm good. And so I was like, okay, she's <laughs> written me off, whatever. So I get my coffee, I sit down. So I'm, I had totally released myself from any kind of anxiety at that point. Cause I figured the date was ruined. So I was just like, whatever, let's just have a conversation. Let's you know, enjoy ourselves. And then she said she had to go like 45 minutes later. So I was like, okay, this, <laughs> I did not see much hope there. And, uh, then at the end of the date, because I figured it was lost cause anyway, I was just like, yeah, I'll be in touch. <laughs> like, you know, instead of ending the date with like, you know, this, you, I hope we can do this again soon or I'll, or, you know, let's set up the next one. I was just like, I'll be in touch. <laughs> and uh, I guess that was enough of a breadcrumb where, you know, she messaged me back. She was like, hey, let's go out again. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, the communication was just so easy. Like she, that, like our second date was like more, I, it was more of a, uh, real date it wasn't like a 45 minute like <laughs> introduction so we were able to talk for a lot longer and it was just like effortless and it and i never felt um like i had to be someone that i wasn't and you know like i didn't feel like i had to impress her and so it was just natural from that point on and there was never any moment where it felt like 
I've, you know, oh my gosh, I've got to make a decision about, you know, progressing this relationship to the next level. You know, do I ask her to be my girlfriend? Do I propose? You know, it's like, it was all just like, well, duh. Yeah, of course. Like that's, we're there anyway. Why not just formalize it? So yeah, it was, it proved to me that when people say stuff like when you know, you just know it's true. Like you do, like, it's not, and it's not like a light bulb that goes off. It's just sort of like, you don't have to think about it. It's just, well, obviously this is right. And, uh, it, to, to answer the question directly, you know, what, what drew me to her, I think it was just the, there was like no pretense. It wasn't as she wasn't like trying to pretend to be someone she wasn't. I think both of us met at just the right time where both of us weren't, we were done like pretending to be who we weren't in order to, you know, find success on the dating scene. So we were just being ourselves. And that was, I think, refreshing for both of us. And I, I think about this a lot. I honestly don't know if if our relationship would have worked out had we met too much earlier. Like if we had met six months earlier, I don't know that we would have been in the right place in our lives to have that connection. And if it had been too much later, the pandemic would have started and we probably wouldn't have met either. So it was like just the right, perfect time. And uh, yeah, just uh, it's been uh, a it's it's not like an effortless relationship but it's not more effort than it needs to be you know people say relationships take work which is true but a lot of times people in bad relationships tell themselves oh you know relationships take work when it's like they're working like you know carrying a boulder on their back and that's not the work that a relationship takes it's just like the normal like living with another person means you have to get past your own ego a lot of times and you have to really you have to realize when you are doing something wrong and when you are difficult to live with and what you need to change about that and like you know committing to we have to work through this no matter what that is difficult no matter how compatible you are and uh so you you got to find the person who isn't adding anything onto it beyond what it's the normal difficulty level, if that makes sense. But yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I would say it's been a good. <laughs> could you call it a fairy tale romance? I don't know. I think uh, I think it was probably even better than that because it was just like easy, just made sense. Yeah, there is a level of effortlessness to it, even if it's not fully effortless, because all relationships require effort. I find that when you're able to explore the full range of your humanity or a full spectrum of your thoughts or conversational topics with someone, you know that you're compatible with them because you don't have to limit yourself to a particular few topics and then that's it, the conversation dies. You're actually able to just relax and talk about whatever comes to your mind with another human being. And I think that that's what relating to a person and having good conversation is with a person. And it's interesting how you mentioned if the circumstances were we different, you might have not even ended up with this human being. And so there is almost a serendipitous element to our relationships 
like one moment you might meet someone at a bus stop that might change your life. And if circumstances were slightly different, you may never have crossed paths with this person. And so in a weird way, it makes you wonder if fate exists, if this was something that was preordained or if it was just a coincidence. Either way, there is an element of chance or magic to life. And it seems like that drew you to your wife. And it's interesting how you thought it was going to end up poorly from the very beginning. You're like, maybe this is doomed. I messed it up. Yeah. And so it also teaches us the, the lesson of sometimes we feel like we've screwed up for good and that we've, we have a point of no return with the situation. Oh, I've messed up and there's no recovering from this. I'm doomed. When really it may not be the case that it might just be us telling ourselves that you could see it as neuroticism in the big five or Enneagram four that you have Frank James, Yeah, where they tend to infer what might be missing or longing for something or feeling inherently deficient or broken. And so it's like, oh, did, did I break this situation? Cause I'm broken. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that pattern that you can see even if it's not there where it's like oh here i did it again i messed this up you know um i had i could have had a good thing going here but oh nope <laughs> so it's uh it is interesting i think that it to overcome that thought of you know oh i am inherently deficient whether you're whether it's because you know you're an enneagram four, or just because you've gone through some stuff in life, um, I think the there is the uh, something I continually am trying to learn. So it's not like I learned it then and I'm coasting now, but it's like not caring, <laughs> like just like I don't care anymore. That day I just happened to be in the mindset of uh, I messed it up, and instead of beating myself up i was just like ah that's just you know whatever let's see how it goes you know it would be worse if i messed it up and then stayed in a bad mindset the rest of the day and like came into the date with this negative energy or this desperate energy of trying to turn it around like let me prove to you that i'm not you know a bad guy because i was late it's just like you know if this date doesn't work out i'll you know go back to the app and hopefully find another date to go on like it was sort of just like that's that's how it goes. Let's just forget the past. <laughs> Let's not try to read any kind of pattern into it about my life. Absolutely. So there's this element of acceptance and not taking life too seriously, which yeah. is a really big growth point. So a lot of suffering comes from taking life too seriously and stressing about things you can't control. And so you decided at that moment, well, it already happened. I can't control the past. So I'm just going to let it go and just let the moment be whatever it is, which is the ultimate form of letting yourself feel at peace no matter what happens to you. And so, yeah, you know, sometimes life can be a simulation. It's like, is this really real? It's like, why should I take everything seriously? Like, I think you've, you've mastered equanimity. That is the Enneagram for virtue, I believe. I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't done as much research on the Enneagram as I have on, you know, the um, Myers-Briggs and that that side of the personality stuff. 
And maybe, you know, it is possible that what you're saying is, uh, is true because either that, or I'm not an Enneagram four, because I'm at a point now where I don't really relate to it anymore. Like I related hardcore to it, of, you know, years ago. And now I'm sort of just like, am I a four? Like, but then I'm like, what type would I be? Like, I don't even know. So, um, I guess that's the thing about the Enneagram is that you can, um, like once you are able to kind of conquer that core fear, I mean, I know there is theories of it where it's like, if you're a healthy type, whatever, you start to resemble another type. Uh, maybe that's what's happening. I don't know. I mean, I would never be so uh, bold as to say I have I have made it. I have arrived. <laughs> I have resolved the tension of my personality type. But uh, but it's, it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> I'm in a better space than I was five years ago. So I, I that would be fair to say. Yeah, you're evolving as you go along, as, and as we all hopefully are. Definitely, yeah. And so in the Enneagram space, Beatrice Chestnut likes to talk about your personality type is who you are not. So actually the goal is transcending Enneagram 4, if you are an Enneagram 4. Even Carl Jung talks about your MBTI type. It's actually a representation of your one-sidedness. Mm -hmm. So the goal is actually to be able to individuate, which is use your other preference as much as possible. And so just as it's hard to open a jar with just one hand. You want to develop both preferences eventually so you can use two hands to open the jar. I think you're doing a good thing. Like the harder it is to figure out your Enneagram type, it might also be a sign that you've grown past the common struggles of that type. And yeah, I find people who are either they've developed past their Enneagram type or they don't have many traumas in their life to begin with, have a harder time figuring out their, their Enneagram type. Yeah. among a host of other reasons and so well that's good for you um well, you know i pat my pat myself on the back about it you know it's interesting you bring up the the you know using your other hand thing because i was just thinking about that earlier today like trying to work out some of the the difficulties of explaining myers-briggs and cognitive functions etc because so often as i'm teaching it in my edutainment videos people in the comments get confused that it is the, you know, it's just, there's a limitation of language when it's like, you know, we're talking about, oh, someone has a feeling preference. It's hard to talk about it in a way that doesn't sound like they don't have thinking, you know, or it's, it's hard to talk about it in a way that makes sense that you can grasp, but then also reflects the obvious experiences that we have in uh, everyday life, you know, because so many commenters who have not fully drunk the Kool-Aid of Myers-Briggs are like, and it, it annoys me, but it's like they have a point where they're like, no one's just this or that. You, you're slapping, you're putting people in a box that's not, you know, it's too black and white. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get what you mean, but uh, <laughs> I get what you mean, but you're wrong. Uh, but then I'm like, oh, but how could you describe it better? And the idea of like, I'm right-handed, but I, it's not like my left hand is gone. Like I still have my left hand and there are even things that I can do with my left hand that my right hand can't do. Like if I'm playing guitar, I, you know, play the frets with the left hand. And if I were to switch it around, my right hand would be like lost. It wouldn't know what to do. Mm. And, uh, 
I'm not good enough with my left hand to be able to do the most important things like write or, uh, you know, eat, lift a fork to my mouth or whatever in the most proper way. But, uh, but it's still there. I can still use it. And uh, so that, that uh, I just wanted to point out, I thought interesting analogy that you brought up because I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. In, in the MBTI certification program, they teach you the method of you try signing with your dominant hand and then you try the, signing with your non-dominant hand and then you describe the experience and that's mm. the same as your MBTI type. So you do have a natural autopilot that's almost effortless to use. And then you can use your other hand, but it requires conscious effort and it's not autopilot and you actually need to actually concentrate to use it. And yeah, so yeah. you have access to both. It's just about what is the starting point? What is the point that comes easiest to you that you go to if you don't control or make a concerted effort to go the other way? Right. And yeah, a way I like to combat the type is a label argument is we label things to understand them. So a lot of things in our lives are categories, such as people who say male or female. Those are things that we put into categories to fully understand. Now, it's not meant to label you. It's just trying to put a name to a phenomenon. Even non-binary is a label or it's a category to understand something better. MBTI is not meant to label you just as male, female, and non-binary is not necessarily there to label you. It's just to define your experience a little bit more cleanly. Now, instead of seeing type as a label, I see it as a filter. So it's a filter for incoming data and a filter for outgoing action. And so that's the perceiving and judging functions. It helps you put an understanding to the filters that you use on a daily basis. And Carl Jung, he talks about projection. And so because we have these filters, we end up applying our way of life onto other people. So for instance, Frank, if you didn't know your wife is a TE dom and you saw it from your own lens, you're like, oh, she's being blunt because she doesn't care about me. Mm. And, or, but when in reality, she cares about you, she just has a different filter than you. So if we don't know about type, we may be projecting our own motivations or our own way of being onto another person without realizing it. For instance, an ESTJ might think that, oh, because Frank isn't on task all the time, he doesn't care or respect me because the SJs, especially the STJs, are respect is being on task and following what I say. So if you don't, then you clearly don't respect me. Right, yeah. And that's not the case. <laughs> and so type helps us realize when we are projecting ourselves onto other people and it helps us honor neurodiversity better. There's a, so much neurodiversity in the world. It's just not as obvious as our physical appearance because we don't see it overtly. So we assume that people are more similar to us than we give credit for until we realize that they're not, that we're jarred, that they have some sort of belief or way of being or way of operating the world that is so different than us that we're like, wow, I'm so jarred by how different your approach is from my approach. And so learning about type helps us accept people who operate differently than us. And it helps us celebrate and embrace diversity rather than just tolerate it and assume negatively onto the other person. 
because we always are coming up with these narratives of why people do what they do. Mm. And isn't it better to approach that from a more compassionate lens rather than a judgmental lens, a more curious lens than a more closed way of seeing another person. So type is just another way to respect neurodiversity and to recognize it. So Yeah. And you bring up a good point that it's like, we all want to categorize people anyway. And I think that the, the argument of, you know, you're just labeling people, you're putting them in the boxes. The truth is that you're going to do that anyway. Like if, whether you know about Myers-Briggs or not, you're putting people in the boxes and the, those boxes are probably not very well defined in your brain. And they might be inherently negative or inherently positive, you know, whereas Myers-Briggs should not, you know, it should all be neutral. Uh, although I, you know, we know it's not <laughs> in practice, but uh, given a lot of the stereotypes, but rather than just be like, that person is rude or that person is like a jerk or, oh, that person is very charming. It's like, yeah, they might, they could be those things, but maybe it's just like, oh, if we like also understood this in the lens of type, which has more cleanly defined lines you could then be like oh it's not that they are a bad whatever my type is it's that they are being their type exactly and there's an old adage that says everyone is different so if you boil an egg it hardens and if you boil a potato it softens and so when you give everyone the same treatment that is unfair to individuals and so typology is ultimately going from the golden rule, which is treating people the way you want to be treated, to the platinum rule, treating people the way they want to be treated. And so you can only do that when you recognize another person as distinctly different than you, rather than seeing everyone as a slightly tweaked version of yourself. And so, yeah, you're totally right, Frank. And I think the reason why typology is used for darker means, as in if we over-stereotype people, it really just speaks for the collective conscious or the collective unconscious of society. You know how they say that you're holding on to a liquid or like, let's say a coffee cup. And if someone bumps into you and coffee spills out, it's really just spilling out the contents that already exists within yourself. And so when people use type to stereotype or to look down on certain types, it's really a reflection of the collective unconscious of that person or of the society at large that they, instead of using type for love, they use it as a way to divide. It just shows that our current society's level of spiritual awareness, which is using it to attack each other and polarize each other, which is what people are already doing with everything else, with politics, every other topic. You see polarization happening at every sphere. And so while type is a neutral tool, it can be used for whatever means that our collective society is unconsciously going through at that moment. So it's not to say that type is bad when it's being used in a bad way. It's just that it's a tool and it can be used to help generate more world peace, which was actually Isabel Myers-Briggs' desire when proliferating this instrument. Or it could be used to demean and degrade other people. It all depends on the user. Just like how a needle can be used to provide life-saving medication for someone, or a needle can be used to euthanize someone. It's a tool that's neutral, that can be used for good or evil. 
And so, yeah, it's really a reflection of the user or the society. I desire to use type as a way to help people grow and develop into the best version of themselves, which I also think you have that goal too, Frank. So, yeah. And, you know, I keep thinking about the, uh, you know, people using it to divide, you know, themselves from other people. And it is true. It's like, you know, you talked about how so many, like, people are divided in so many different ways. And so then they bring that into type and they're like, okay, that person I don't like, what type are they? Okay, now I don't like anyone who's that type. You know, it's like that, okay, that type is the type that is like this type of person I hate, which, you know, I've brought into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of it is also just the loaded language of a lot of MBTI that we as people who are initiated into it are more, you know, we are, we're comfortable with terms like thinking versus feeling or whatever. We get what it means, but it's like when people are just getting into it, when they're first introduced to it, I feel like it can also be like an initial gut reaction to the words. And they're like, okay, I don't want to be a feeler or I don't want to be a thinker or like though one or the other is bad, like not, not even knowing what they mean, just bringing the, the, the connotation of the words that they already have into it with them. And like you've, like you've pointed out, like it says a lot about the person who is typing or typing someone else or their interpretation of different types. It says a lot about, it says more about them than it does about, the other people that they are pointing to or the other types that they do or don't like. I just, it's just a problem I keep thinking about, like how do you unload the language of it to make it less, to, to make it seem less of a, how, how do you divide people without making it clear that it's dividing people up? It, it's tough. Like it's, it's difficult to make something neutral for everybody, I guess is, is the, the issue I've been turning around in my mind recently. Yeah, because human beings can carry a lot of baggage and then project that baggage onto typology very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the ways people can create less loaded language in MBTI is if you have a positive example of every type in the MBTI sphere so that you can't really project all of your hate onto that one group and generalize them all because you'll always have that one example of that cool person in that group too that will go against your preconceptions of that type. That's really good. And that's something I struggle with too. If I, if I can open up here about the comedy stuff is that it is really difficult to make something funny without like turning towards like the more negative aspects of a personality type. And then also just like me having my stupid uh, desire to give people what they want, (laughs) I will make certain types more uh, relatable than other types just because it's like, I know that people will not like it if I, say, for instance, make the INFJ like unsympathetic this time around. Whereas if I make an ESTP unsympathetic, nobody cares, you know, and even the ESTPs are like, haha, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so um, yeah, I've, it's difficult. Like I have sometimes a, cla- a conflict of consci- conscience where I'm like, I want to take 
take down the stereotypes and and do do something that's a little more neutral but it's when it comes to comedy like i don't know how like comedy is meant to like roast people at least the way i'm doing it so it's just it's interesting even when teaching it like it's difficult to teach in a short youtube video about types without getting into somewhat inaccurate stereotypes because you have to draw things high contrast for people to latch onto it quickly you know like if you talk in all the subtleties of what reality actually is it's like what what was that even about frank <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh it's a big task for those of us who who teach personality type to always be aware of that to like try to draw just in high enough contrast to get the point across but then also pull back and be like hey there are like there's a lot of blurred lines around these things and you've got to like think of things in in a more broad way rather than the super narrow way where it's like ESTPs are just cool guys who you know talk fast and you know uh like football or whatever you know <laughs> it's like there's more to it mm-hmm yeah it's easier to paint a very clear version of a type than to provide all the subtlety because then it drowns out the clarity of the of the type yeah. so content creators like myself and frank we run into the struggle between integrity and people pleasing should we do what we know our audience will like more or should we do something that's more informationally accurate towards the type and it is this push and pull or conflict of content creators because even for me i'm like should i create a five sign series or a listicle which i know people will enjoy more or should i try to subtly deconstruct types and try to give people my nuanced take on how to understand these types in a more intellectually honest way so there's always this to be or not to be either way there is a pro and con to either way so what do you pick Algorithm, try to appeal the, to the algorithm and audience or try to appeal to type ethics and try to do do type justice by representing it accurately. It's like, oh. Yeah, it, you know, it's, I think the, it's hard to do, but what I have tried to do is approach it with kind of a synthesis of the two where it's like, let me find a way to put, to do the TI and put that out there, like what the the logic that I am trying to express from my point of view, and then let me wrap it in the FE to maybe like confuse everyone, <laughs> make them think that they like it, and then they accidentally through osmosis get the actual nugget of wisdom or whatever that I'm trying to put in there. Because if you go too far one way or the other, like, I mean, this is obvious, but it's detrimental. If you do, if you go too far into pleasing the audience, I think they catch on to it and they don't like it. And this, that's something I'm having to learn right now is pulling back on that. And I'm in an uncomfortable position where I feel like I'm going to have to start doing a lot of like straight up masculine TI and it doesn't feel comfortable at all. And like just putting out things that are a bit more serious and like me trying to, me expressing things that I think are 
problems that are important to solve in this personality sphere and you know making stuff about that rather than just like hey what are uh you know 10 most cool types <laughs> you know but then if you go too far in that other direction you you really run the risk of losing the audience if you haven't done enough smart uh planning and research and figuring out like where does where does what i want to say line up with what they want to hear and how do i like how do i convince them to come along with me more towards my side of things and like it's a constant push and pull but i do i definitely think that people respect a creator who does their own thing and is willing to stand on that introverted decision making but is also making it clear like, hey, I'm also checking in with you guys to see, like, do you appreciate this or not? And if you don't, maybe I'll, you know, do it a little bit and then I'll move on. I'll try something else, you know? Absolutely. And so on that note, thank you, Frank James, for making the 16 types relevant through humor and for being people's gateway into this beautiful personality theory and for representing this theoretical atmosphere in comedy, which your edutainment does so well. And yeah, you're a positive force in the typology world. You're very highly respected and very highly loved in this typology sphere. So I'm glad that I had the chance to interview you and hear your takes. We know the funny side of Frank James, but it's nice to also know about the down to earth side of you as well. And yeah, congrats on the family life and all this YouTube success that you're having. You all deserve it. <laughs> Thank you, Joyce. It's been great to uh, to chat with you. I really appreciate you having me on your channel. As I said, I really enjoy all the interviews that you do. I learn a lot by hearing all of you know the the guests you get of different types and hearing you know their different uh, perspectives and everything. So keep it up. Awesome. And so that's a wrap. Thanks everyone for watching Type Talks. My name is Joyce Ming, and I'll see you all later. Bye. Mm -hmm.